0: Hello and welcome to Publishers Weekly Radio, on the web at PublishersWeekly.com slash PWRadio and streaming free on iHeartRadio, iTunes, and AudiobookRadio.net. I'm Mark Rotella, Senior Editor at Publishers Weekly.
1: And I'm Rose Fox. I'm a Senior Reviews Editor at Publishers Weekly. We're bringing you the very best of book talk directly from PW's offices in New York City, the heart of the book publishing world.
0: On today's show, author Mark Rabowski discusses his new book, Dreams to Remember, Otis Redding, Stacks Records, and the Transformation of Southern Soul. Then, PW Comics Reviews editor Heidi McDonald previews San Diego Comic Con.
1: But first, here's a sneak peek at next week's Publishers Weekly bestseller list powered by Nielsen Bookscan. And on my end, the big news for once is not on the fiction hardcover list, but on the fiction trade paperback list, ah. uh, where Gray, which is uh, Fifty Shades of Gray, as told from Christian's perspective by right. E.L. James, has sold 354,000. Thousand trade paperback copies in its first week out, and once you factor in ebook sales, it's over a million copies
0: yeah. sold. Yeah, uh, that's amazing. It is a phenomenal. In that first week, they're expect they've gone back to print th- second, three, fourth, and fifth times. Yeah, now, uh, <laughs> to over two point five million. That's Or around 2.5 Anyway Pretty uh, amazing
1: Yeah You yeah. yeah. uh, know yeah, They're just Shipping those boxes out. It, you know In the the Willy Wonka movie Where there's The scenes Of the boxes Of chocolates Going right. out Into the world I sort of Picture <laughs> right, it right. Like that So we have A review Of Grey Thanks to uh, uh, One of my Reviewers Who read The entire book uh, And got me A review ASAP Because um, yeah. uh, They don't Send out Advanced copies For books Like this Because they Know that The reviews Won't affect Sales right. at all. Right. But uh, we Still like to make our feelings known and in this case uh, we say that it is a mediocre erotic romance that lacks both passion and intimacy Mm. so uh, you know these, uh, these books have never been renowned for their literary qualities but right. apparently this one uh really just sinks uh and we say and also this version mirrors the source material so well that it adds very little to the story merely filtering the events through a less sympathetic lens so once you get a look inside Christian Grey's head it's, uh, we say that his inner voice shows him to be obsessive, possessive, insecure, and needy, with a tendency to treat and view Anna like a child. Wow. So, um, maybe not the, the hottest thing, right. but that's not stopping it from selling like hotcakes.
0: Right, exactly. Yep.
1: So that's, uh, that's the big news in fiction. Uh, beyond that, we have the usual crop of bestsellers and hardcover with, uh, much, much lower sales numbers. Right. Uh, you know, I mean, these are great numbers for hardcover fiction. It's just, James is a phenomenal. So
0: big. <laughs> That's huge. Uh,
1: yeah. So at number three on the hardcover fiction list, uh, we have Country by Danielle Steele. I uh, don't have a review of this one yet, but it's a Danielle Steele novel. It's women's fiction. Um, she is one of the real stars of the genre and has been for a very, very long mm. time. Um, and this particular book, the cover copy says it explores the complex ties between spouses, children, lovers and friends, and dances between the past and the future, which means it's a lot like many other Danielle Steele right. books. But uh, she has a very devoted following. Uh, this This one sold 32,000 copies in hardcover its first week out, Uh, so it's uh, doing very well. And uh, just a little bit lower on the list at number four is uh, Tom Clancy Under Fire. This is Grant Blackwood uh, continuing Tom Clancy's Jack Ryan Jr., Uh, series. Uh, Our review of this is just about to go up. It's not up today, but hopefully tomorrow, and uh, we say that he's really doing a very good job continuing it, and that fans of Jack Ryan will find that he is the all-American hero they remember from Clancy's books. So uh, this is a fun summer read thriller for you. Another thriller is at uh, number five. This one's a near-future book, uh, the sequel to The Fifth Assassin. It's called The President's Shadow by Brad Meltzer. And uh, it opens with a f- great dramatic image, of the first lady finding a severed arm in the White House Rose Garden. Ooh. So, uh, you know, all, all sorts of nasty implications there. Right. We say that fans of historical conspiracy fiction will find a lot to like, but readers should be prepared for thin characters and a very over-the-top plot. Mm. Uh, so that's at number five. And uh, finally, I just wanted to go a little bit down... Uh, further down the list to the Santangelo's by Jackie Collins, which is at number 13. Uh, and uh, this is you know, another long running series it's starring Lucky Santangelo, who uh, has a hotel and casino empire in Las Vegas. And uh, I really appreciated this particular one because uh, it, it has a Middle Eastern king whose name is Emir, which means king. Mm. And so it, it, it would be like someone being named President President. He's, right. he's King emir. Oh. <laughs> um, so you, you don't need to know a lot about the plot. It's complicated and uh, tangled and lots right. of tension and stress and murder and drama. And uh, we say that the Santangelo clan is in usual fine form with this fresh yet classically over the top page turner spearheaded by an indefatigable libidinous heroine. Wow. So. That's uh, that's definitely a poolside read. Um, in fact, the cover has an enormous swimming pool on it to make sure that you know that.
0: Yes, it looks. <laughs> I see that right now. It looks inviting.
1: Exactly. Exactly. Yeah. Even even with the the, the pistol. Right there next to the heroine on the opposite side from you know her what? martini. That's,
0: that is great. The pool was so inviting. I didn't even notice the pistol, but well, there it is. Well,
1: you have to be careful around yes, these people, Mark.
0: Exactly. <laughs> <laughs> so
1: what's happening in nonfiction?
0: All right. So topping the debut at number four is Modern Romance, and Investigation by actor Aziz Ansari and author Eric Klinenberg, who's a sociologist. The two teamed up in 2013 to design and conduct a research project to better understand the dating game as is played today. Um, We say, despite Ansari's insistence otherwise, most of this material has been covered exhaustively elsewhere, but... Ansari's oddball sense of humor does bring something new and refreshing to the conversation. So it's a little give, a little take in our review. And uh, going along, number 11, we have film producer, writer, director Judd Apatow, uh, Sick in the Head. And here he takes, we say, is hilarious, insightful, and deeply personal look into what makes comedians tick. He's the uh, director, producer of Freaks and Geeks, and 40-Year-Old Virgin, and so many others. Uh, we really like this book. And in the end, say, this exploration of what it really means to be funny day in and day out is uh this is for the comedian in this all number 20 we have by robert curson pirate hunters treasure obsession and the search for a legendary pirate and uh this is at number 20 and the the, the pirate is uh, uh 17th century ship joseph banister which was lost somewhere in the waters near the dominican republic and uh, number 25, uh, we're going to be seeing there are several books published about Richard Nixon. This was by Tim Weiner, One Man Against the World, The Tragedy of Richard Nixon. Uh, we gave this a star, uh, and the author is a National Book Award winner for Legacy of Ashes. And here he pulls no punches in this devastating account of Nixon's presidency. He draws on documents declassified in the last seven years. And that's what we have on the nonfiction bestseller list. All right. I'm Mark Rotella. And
1: I'm Rose Fox, and this is Publishers Weekly Radio.
0: Next up, Mark Rabowski talks about his two books on music phenomena, Otis Redding and Leonard Skynyrd. Stay tuned. We'll be right back.
2: I'm Kate Bolick, author of Spinster, and you're listening to Publishers Weekly Radio. I'm
1: Rose Fox.
0: And I'm Mark Rotella, and you're listening to Publishers Weekly Radio, direct from the PW offices in New York City.
1: Today we've got Mark Rabowski on the line. His new book is Dreams to Remember, Otis Redding, Stax Records, and the Transformation of Southern Soul. Mark, I'm so glad you could join us.
3: Thank you. appreciate it.
1: So your newest book just out, uh, as I said, is about Otis Redding. But you've also just published "Whiskey Bottles and Brand New Cars: The Fast Life and Sudden Death of Leonard Skinnerd." These genres seem very different. What what are the connections between the two?
3: You know, they do seem completely polar opposite, but they're actually not. One one is actually a, se- a sequel to the other. The Skinnerd is a sequel in a way because they're the same character. Same characters in the cast, basically. You know, this is this is uh, in the '60s when Southern Soul was ascendant, and then after Otis's death, unfortunate death in the, in, the, in the plane crash in 1967, uh, the entire structure of Southern Soul seemed to fall apart, and Stax Records almost fell apart. And what happened was these studios that were that had made that sound so vibrant, so resonant, were sitting there, and the next time they were used was when there was another another movement on the ascendants, which was southern rock, or redneck rock, or whatever you want to call it. Led by led in the end by Leonard Skinner. They used the same studios. That's when Muscle Shoals was used for rock and roll rather than soul. And uh, in fact, the same people, the same management people from from Otis Redding, were the ones who who guided the career of Leonard Skinner. Phil. Walden and his brother alan Walden and you know they were they were the uh, sort of the titans of of southern soul and they turned on a dime and became the titans of southern rock it was an amazing transformation and what he makes it even more ironic and amazing is that the story ends basically the same way for 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 each character in a tragedy so the, it, it's 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 a it's a it's an unbelievable story it's atavistic the way it repeated itself And I don't don't think there's anything like it uh, elsewhere in music history.
0: Yeah, it's true. Uh, I mean, they both had uh, the 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 members of uh, Leonard Skinner, or at least uh, uh, Ronnie Van Zant, Otis Redding, had short, uh, 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 brightly burning careers that led tragically. And let's let's start first with with uh, uh, the most recent book, and and therefore, like the beginning of Stax with Otis Redding and Stax Records. So let's talk about. The, the stacks label how was it founded and what uh was otis redding uh how did he come into the studios
3: yeah i mean it, it was founded in, in the, the, the with the least fanfare imaginable it was a uh, out of uh, memphis uh which was known obviously stamped by nashville and 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 the, that country music that glittery country music scene and uh it, it was at the very bottom of the rung of recording. It was founded by Jim Stewart, who was a part time fiddler and full time uh a bank employee and his sister estelle axton, thus the s t a x and they They just started it on a shoestring in a in a storefront in Memphis and they started out very slowly and started started to gather a little steam. They had some hits with with Rufus Thomas and his daughter carla thomas G whiz was the number one hit it. And then Booker T and the MGs came along with Green Onions in 1962. So things were starting to gel, but it was still the very, very bottom rung of the recording industry. Absolutely no competition for Motown. And Jim Stewart was a white man, mind you. And he ran this operation without going to the country country end of it. He wanted to establish a soul music dynasty because he appreciated as few white men did in the South, the power, you know, the the majesty of uh, R&B and blues music, which originated in the South. But it was no no competition whatsoever for Motown until Otis Redding comes along in 1962, 63, and starts to record these unbelievably emotional, powerful songs that sound like he was turning himself inside out when he was singing. And just, this caused an immediate fire. You know, this, this really caused a lot of movement. Uh, even though he didn't sell a lot of records to the white market, he became sort of a cult figure from about 63 to Sixty-five when he recorded Respect, and then he started gradually crossing over, uh, never really achieving that great crossover success, but selling millions of records because people started to buy his albums because they wanted to hear him in context, not bit by bit. So this, this really started to change the entire industry. And uh, by the end of the decade, it had surpassed Motown in the soul market. It was an amazing transformation. And then it all came crashing down when Otis died. That,
0: that's how sudden it ended. So he died in uh, 65. Uh, 67. Uh, 67. And uh, what was going on? I've got two questions related to stacks. I mean, first of all, right. physically, you, you have, uh, I, I was in Memphis a few years ago, and I remember visiting both Sun Records, uh, which produced the legends, Elvis, Jerry Lee Lewis, Johnny Cash, right. Carl Perkins, one side of town, stacks the other. What was, what was going on? What was going on in Memphis at this time?
3: Yeah, actually, by all right, Sam Phillips should have should have had dibs on that market because he was the one who originally, started, you know, it was in Sam Phillips Studio at the first rock and roll record. Well, it's regarded as the first rock and roll record was recorded, which is Rocket Eighty Eight by Jackie Brenston right. with uh, Ike Turner as the as the as the guy producing it without credit. That was in 1950. By all rights, Sam Phillips should have should have owned that market of Southern soul, but he started to branch out into. Into the rockabilly, the country rock market you know with carl perkins and 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 then Elvis, of course, so he sort of veered into that end of it, and that left a void you know in 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 the soul market that jim St- that Jim Stewart picked up, so they sort of developed in, par- in 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 parallelism with uh with with Phillips having amazing success on the rock side of it. And then Jim Stewart having amazing success on the soul side because of Otis, really. Without Otis, I don't think that ever would have developed. There would have been success at stacks I mean, they had they had great talent. Don't get me wrong; they had tremendous talent with Sam Butte and Wilson Pickett and and Percy Sledge in that whole market. But without Otis, Otis was the glue. You know, you could build an empire just around his reputation alone, because when he went out, he would sell out every gig that he did. So he sort of he sort of Carried along on his back.
1: So you had mentioned. Uh, meanwhile, there was a lot going on upriver in Detroit. The Motown sound was happening. Uh, very different sound. What was the the connection or the tension between Detroit and Memphis soul and R and uh,
3: I would call it a healthy friendly rivalry, you know, the, uh, I talked to, uh, for the book, uh, Otis Williams, I call him the other Otis of the 60s, of the Temptations, so I did a book with Otis about the Temptations, and uh, he w- he was friends with Otis, but he's got, you know, he's, got, he's got that chauvinism, you know, because when you talk to a Motown artist... About Stax, they give them they give them a lot of credit, but they also always say it's almost mandatory that they say, but they rep, but they were they represented and they their sound was endemic to the South. It was a regional kind of thing. And that's what Otis Williams said. He said when I heard whenever I heard an Otis Redding song or a, or a Stax record song, I would think this is the music I grew up in. Growing up in Texarkana, this is a regional kind of sound. Whereas in with Motown, it was geared towards. Toward, it was actually geared toward the white market. I mean, don't, mm-hmm. don't let anybody ever tell you it wasn't, because that was Barry Gordy's soul philosophy. That he was going to take soul music and broaden it, and make it so anodyne sometimes that it wouldn't be even, even definable as soul music. Whereas Jim Stewart always kept the faith, always wanted it to be completely identifiable as that Southern... You know, sound that that had emerged, that had evolved from the Delta blues man, and he did. He he never he never cut corners on that, and that's what got him in trouble. I think he just never broadened his purview, and he was it was so he was so open to manipulation by by the northern record people, the white guys running the show in New York, that they wound up looting his entire catalog from him and almost put stacks into the ground. But when it was ascended. There was nothing like Stax. There was just nothing. It, 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 it's emotion. It's its resonance was, was, I think, even more so, even more identifiable in Motown. And listen, I've written three Motown books. i met some of those Funk Brothers, those musicians from you know Motown, and there was nobody like them. But when it came to gut level soul, I think Stax was really, really had them beat on that.
0: Yeah, and and with the stacks uh, with a stack sound, it was almost kind of raw compared to the clean, really heavily was, and produced. You know,
3: and they ne- and Jim Stewart never, you know, in the sixties was a time of great technological advancement in, in in recording. You know, all these these studios, even Barry Gordy's studio and Motown started with you know a, a two track machine and it was very crude, but but very quickly Motown adapted and they became technologically very very advanced with with eight track machines, sixteen machines, Jim. Stewart always kept it like four, four tracks, and he never recorded piecemeal. He didn't record the rhythm track and then overdub and then and then add the vocals as the last thing that you do. He did it all, all at once. It was. Live, it was like you were in a club, and this was the music bouncing off the walls. He, the recording studio at, that, at Stax was in an old converted movie theater, and the acoustics were so weird, but at the same time they were so advantageous to what he wanted to do because he would, if you listen to any of those Stax records, the echo the slapping of the of the sine waves off the walls is just like nothing else you 'll ever hear and They played every one of those records with the same core of musicians. And they never they never wavered in how they recorded it.
0: And so you had mentioned about Otis Redding, how it was almost like he was crying out. I mean, he's really uh, uh, honest, really uh, soulful. What was it about his voice that kind of captured the, the the public's listening or in their imagination? What was it about him that sounded South?
3: It was just the sound of an open wound and a beating heart. I mean, it was nothing phony about it. There are a lot of soul artists who sound like Otis. Uh, Solomon Burke sounds like a lot like Otis. Eddie Floyd sounded like Otis sometimes. You know, Chrissy Sledge. You know, he would turn himself out inside out when he would sing. You know, when a man loves a woman. But there was just there was just something about when Otis did it that sounded totally free of any pretense and totally straight from the heart and the soul. And. Uh, I, I've never heard anything, you know, a lot, of, a lot of Otis's songs sound the same, you know, only the titles seem to change, but it didn't matter, because what, whenever he would sing it, he'd bring a new dimension, he'd, he'd take that, that emotional core, that molten core to a, to a new level every time he sang, and that's why people love to hear him, because every song would be like a rebirth, <laughs> you know, and, and, and he'd give his all to it, and then the next song would be another rebirth. So there was something about that. Uh, I, I, there was a New York Times uh, uh, critic in the uh, '60s named Robert Shelton, and I, he he described it as deep dish Negro, a, a deep dish Negro concept of involvement and sincerity. I don't know if I would put it quite in the same terms. You have to remember, though, that was the '60s. But he was right. There was just something about it that stir fry that the Deep South sensibility you know, going back to the Negro Spirituals and the Delta Blues men that you just didn't hear in, in other performers, even though they were great. Sam and Dave were great. Wilson Pickett were, it was great. But Jerry Wexler of Atlantic Records said it himself, you know, he, he loved Wilson Pickett and he and he had direct involvement in Wilson Pickett's career, but he admitted when it came to to that authenticity, nobody could touch Otis Redding. And that's I, it just that's the that's the way his cult
1: accrued. Wow! Well, listening to you talk about it has uh, <laughs> has inducted me into that cult. I have, uh, you, you, just, you just have wonderful language it's for still this a cult.
3: It really, is. yeah, it's still there.
1: Uh, So you it also sells
3: a lot of records every year. Yeah, every year I, he sells. I It's it. like I'm doing a book now on Hank Williams. Hank Williams, who died in 1953, sells a lot of records every year. Mm. It's because people like that come along in their, jo- in their own genre maybe once a century. So, you, you know, you never, get, you never get sick of it.
1: So you also write about Redding's influence on West Coast acts like The Grateful Dead and Janis Joplin. How did his popularity and sound kind of emerge from the South and go West?
3: Yeah, he, he did it reluctantly, because <laughs> Otis was, he was a, a, he was a country boy, he called himself a farm boy, even though he grew up in, you know, in a teeming city in Macon, downtown Macon, Georgia, but he moved later on to the farm, the big old ranch, and he always considered himself a big old farmer, if you listen to the song Tramp the duet he did with Carla Thomas, uh, classic duet, soul duet. You know, he, he just relishes saying, you know, what a country boy he is, but a country boy who had, like, five Cadillacs in, in the driveway, you know. like <laughs> <So laughs> right. rub it in a little bit if, you know, a country boy like me could make it, you know. Anybody can make it. But uh, he took that sound to the West Coast because he knew he had to broaden his appeal. He was selling a lot of records on the on the R&B market. He was a big star. He was making millions of dollars. But he needed that big crossover because, you know, the mid-60s to the late 60s, it became a white rock and roll world. They, that's the, That was the world, that ru- the, the ruling class of rock. And Otis had to find his way into it. So he went out there first. He did a, a, um, uh, an engagement at the Whiskey A Go-Go in Los Angeles. And he played for Bill Graham at the uh, Fillmore in San Francisco. And then he, of course, had his biggest triumph at the Monterey Monterey Festival in 1967, which uh, you know really made his career. So he was little by little inching toward the rock and roll world. without changing what he did. Now he wasn't he wasn't catering to white rock. He wanted white rock to cater to him. He wanted you know he wanted the mountain to come to Muhammad. So that's what happened. He had tremendous success in each and every one of these engagements. I mean, his, 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 he owned Monterey. It wasn't Hendrix, it wasn't Joplin, it was Otis Redding who owned Monterey. He closed the show. And he was the one who came away from it with, the, with, with most of the buzz, you know. But so he was moving toward that direction when he died, which, you know, explains Dock of the Bay. It was like nothing he had ever done. It wasn't geared to the black market. It was geared more to a folk market, mm-hmm. a folk soul market. So he was moving, he was very clever in what he did, he knew what he wanted to do, and had he lived, I think he would have even made made even bigger bigger inroads into the white market. He would have been huge in that market in the 70s.
1: We're going to take a quick break, but don't go away.
0: Book lovers everywhere love Publishers Weekly Radio, now on iHeartRadio.com. PW Radio brings you the best of books and book publishing news. PW editors Rose Fox and Mark Rotella offer lively interviews with your favorite authors and conversations with new authors you'll want to get to know.
1: I'm Rose Fox.
0: And I'm Mark Rotella.
1: Join the community of book lovers at PW Radio.
0: Every Friday and now on demand at iHeartRadio.com.
1: Welcome back. We're talking with Mark Rubashky, author of two new books about music. One is Dreams to Remember about Otis Redding and Stax Records, and the other is Whiskey Bottles and Brand New Cars about Leonard Skinner. So let's talk Leonard Skinner and uh, how you said that in some ways the stories are very parallel between their their story and the Otis Redding story.
3: Well, you know, when, when Ronnie Van Zant sang about the Swampers, you know, that was the first time anyone had ever ever mentioned. It those Muscle Shoals musicians that had made so many great soul records in the sixties. The Swampers was a nickname for the rhythm section at the mm. Muscle Shoals studio in Alabama. Little, these little backwoods studios where so much music history was made. So they understood they understood they may have been rednecks. I mean you know they, they certainly didn't have the musical pedigree of an Otis Redding. They didn't have the musical education. Of uh, Janis Joplin or Jerry Garcia, but they knew Ronnie Van Zant, who who really was Leonard Skinner, they, the, He could have he could have played with five strangers and had just the same success, I think, because it was all it was all his doing. He was he was the spiritual, intellectual, the voice, everything about skinner and he understood black music. He understood how black music really was the root form of country music and rock and roll at the same time. Something that, you know, it was not being given credit for at the time. It's only in later years, like in in retrospect, in the 60s, 70s, 80s, 90s, that... those great Delta bluesmen have been given their due. Nobody knew who Robert Johnson was Mm. until the 70s and 80s, you know? Nobody, Muddy Waters wasn't known until he started appearing with the Rolling Stones, you know? Mm. It, so okay. these were the these were the movers, the great the great pioneers that made southern music come alive, and and Van Zant knew that. And there's a lot of soul in 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 Skinner's music. There, there really is. There's a lot of there's a lot of R and B in there, and this is what he wanted to do. And. Again, here's that parallelism. When he died in that plane crash in 1977, he was about to go into, the, into a new direction, into a more soulful direction. So it, it, it's, it, that that compounds the tragedy, mm-hmm. right? Because we never got to see what Otis Redding and Ronnie Vincent would be like when they hit their 30s. That's, that. That to me is, is really is what compounded the tragedy.
0: Yeah, you're right. There was that Monterey, and Otis died in 70 uh, 67, uh, and then after, shortly after the. Uh the uh, uh, popular Leonard Skinner concert in Oakland in '77, Ronnie Van Zant died. Um, and the, so I just want to go back, to Leonard Skinner. The, so the groups from Florida, along with the Allman Brothers, who they went to the same high right. school, Robert E Lee High School. Uh, there was also '38 Special, which was an offshoot of uh, uh, Johnny Van Zant, and then Molly Hatchet, right. and then from my hometown, Tampa, the Outlaws. Um, right. uh, what, what was going on? Yeah, in the Florida? Outlaws. Yeah.
3: Uh, in fact, the guy who. who uh, managed uh, Skinner, uh, after they reformed in the 80s, Charlie Brusco managed the outlaws. So, that, again, it, it's a very small world. It's a, it's, a, it's a tight-knit family down there in northern Florida, southern Georgia. Right. And a lot of the people who were responsible for the Allman Brothers also were, were responsible for Skinner. And so, I mean, Phil Walden, oh, you know, he, Phil Walden was was the guy who really broke the Alma Brothers and his, and his younger brother Alan was the guy who broke Skinner and it's such a small world it's, right. it's amazing.
0: So it wasn't necessarily something that was happening in Florida at the time rather than it was a few people who were really influential in this I mean what I think is like the, the roots of Southern Rock
3: yeah, well, I live in Florida, and there 's really not much happening here anyway <laughs> no, <laughs> <ever>. <laughs> this is not the most happening place' it's not this is not where you know people don 't come here to create they come here to die basically uh, you know so these guys these guys were from the the what, what could be called the ghetto of jacksonville mm-hmm. uh skinner they, you know they grew up they grew up in shantytown there, which i'm sure you know right shantytown um, not the place you want to grow up and it was a very it was a very hard scrabble life. And Ronnie Van Zant, you know, he, he, was, he, he was being arrested. He was, he was spending the night in jail when he was, like, 13, 14 years old, you know. The only other outlet he had was to sing. Right. And he, that's what he was born to do. Because if not for that, he never, would, he never would have survived. He wouldn't have survived to 27 yeah, or 26 or whatever it was, you know, when he died. So, you know, there was something there that was guiding them. It was, it was, it was a force of nature. Because, you know, no, nobody came out of Jacksonville. You know, nobody really, I mean, Tom Petty later on came out of northern Florida, Don Felder, the Eagles, you know. But at the time, there was really nothing going on in Jacksonville. So it was really up to Skinner to write their own rules, which they did, which was why they were such a pariah in the industry. I mean, they were cut out of the Rock and Roll Hall of Fame for, what, about six, seven years after they were eligible? Can you believe that? And
0: I why mean, is that? that?
3: That's almost as unbelievable as Otis Renning never getting a Grammy right. until he was dead. I right. mean, the, the the industry just punishes it seems people with with something to say that don't adhere to the to, you know, the party line. And Skinner was proud of that. They were proud to be, you know, the the redneck, uh, you know, the rednecks, the, the you know, the, the white trash of the industry. As long as they could do things their way, that's why Freebird runs 15 minutes in some versions. <laughs> if they had been following the industry, Freebird would have been a, would have been a three and a half minute record for AM radio. Right. And, but they, they never ever would have agreed to that. So they really were rebels in the finest sense of the word, except for using that using that cursed flag. Well, i like to... flag, which will always be a stain on them.
0: Well, I'd like to talk to you about that. I mean, this is uh, – uh, uh, you know, obviously, the flag has been in the news so much, and this was a part right. of their – was on their record label, uh, it was on their record jackets, was uh, the backdrop it's for the stages. Awful.
3: It's just awful looking well, back at it. Really, exa- the their The way their record company, MCA, used that flag – it, they they should have been locked up for that. I mean that was just horrible because it was just so insensitive. It was like just let's give us a marketing tool here, give us a gimmick we can use, you know that'll that'll give us some give this band an identity. And you know how how much of a uh, you know soulless person can you be to use that flag as a marketing tool? Because you know that really that's really what started this whole thing with the flag. If you look back. I mean, the flag was not really flown in any, you know, sense. It was was never flown on Hank Williams' day. It only came about in, 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 what, 1963, when George Wallace started to fly it. And, you know, it was only a decade after that that skinner starts using it and, and that's when the popularity of that stupid flag really took off it gave them a lot of problems too because they right from the start they had to explain that why are you using the symbol of slavery and racism and, and, and treason and they said well you know we, we, it's, we, it's the heritage it's the record companies doing blah 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 they never really had an explanation for it and that to this day gary rossington the only survivor of, of skinner left of the original band is still. Has, he still asked about it, and he still doesn't have a good answer. And even though it's been taken down from all these state houses, you go to a Skinner country, you're going to see that stupid flag, and they really have to answer to that because they're like the only ones left really using, other than the jingos, the rednecks, and the, and the pickup trucks. You know, they're on a higher level, yet they have no qualm using that flag, and I think they still have to answer for that.
1: And how how does that jibe with Vincent being, as you said, willing to acknowledge the the bluesmen, the the black musicians who were really uh, at the root of the music they were playing? I mean, there's such a conflict there.
3: Yeah, because he was also a very he was also a very canny businessman. He knew that this was this was their whole thing, being the Southern rebels, the redneck rebels, you know, the the updated hillbillies, you know, so. It, it was a good marketing tool i 'm not saying it wasn 't it was an excellent marketing tool it 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 's like an it 's synonymous with the band, but if you read the book you 'll see that that Van Zen had a hard time justifying it too and He would say well you know it's it 's the record company that did it it 's we 're embarrassed by it yet in the next the next breath he 's wearing a Confederate uniform on stage and he 's going to the Alabama State House. To accept a commission in the Alabama State Militia from uh-huh. George Wallace, and you know, I, I I talk to people and they're in the book who say that he actually admired Wallace, and you could you could hear that in in Sweet Home Alabama when he talks about the governor, you know, mm-hmm. the governor's true, you know, it's, that's why Sweet Home Alabama is you know, it's it's not, it's the state motto of Alabama, and the song was one that paid tribute to George Wallace. I mean, there's so, there's so many cross-currents here, and they were embarrassed. Van Zant was embarrassed by using the flag, but it became bigger than them. It became bigger than the band. It became a Southern thing to use that flag. That's why I hold them in contempt. I hold them responsible for that, because they never thought it through what they were doing. And now it's like, too late. So it's, you know, even though Van Zandt was a, a, a fan of, of black music, he still was a southern boy. He still would use language. He would use the N-word. He would use the colored folks, the colored people, you know, because that's how he was conditioned when he was growing up as a southern boy. So it's a very complicated thing, and uh, you can't ex- you can't even you can't even explain it sufficiently. You can't say he was this or he was that because the truth falls somewhere in between. You know, like when Neil, when Neil Young attacked the South, and he was very fr- Van Zandt was very friendly with Neil Young and he respected Neil Young. He had to answer him with Sweet Home Alabama. You know. Well, I heard Mr. Young sing about her, you know, and he, you know, it was, very, it, was, it was very sizzling the way he did that. But there are a lot of cross currents, and it's not easily explainable. Just like this whole thing with the flag now is not easily explainable.
1: So you've uh, written about a number of different subjects in music Satchel Page uh, and Negro League Baseball, uh, also music producer Phil Spector, football coach Tom Landry. What draws you to this diverse range of subjects?
3: Uh, the story, you know, not the person as much as the story. Because I'm of the opinion that there's nothing left to write about. <laughs> you know, every, every subject that's been written about that can be written about. So if you do a book about somebody, it has to be – it can't be just that he did this, then he did that, then he did this. You know, that that kind of uh, extended Wikipedia entry is is what you find in most books. Uh, uh, that's uh, one of my pet peeves too. You know, the doing this Hank Williams. There, there, there have probably been five, six books written about Hank Williams. Every photograph that was ever taken of Hank Williams has been shown in a book. You know, and the story's been repeated in movies and and you know a million times. But it was never done in the context of the times. You know, the not only the story but the backstory. You know, culturally, politically, socially the conditions that gave rise to these people. And so that's what I try to do when I do these books. I try to, I try to make it a sweep of history and culture rather than just hagiography, You know, because, you know, I, I, I love Phil Spector, right? I mean, I think he's a genius, but he's also the world's worst person. So, you know, you right. can't go into a book to glorify people just because you're writing a book about them. So you know what I do is you know I just tell the story, the good and the bad. There's a lot bad about the Otis Redding story. He was the guy who carried guns and he abused women on the road, and he got into shootouts and he cheated on his wife frequently. You know he was not the, he was not a saint. He was godlike, but he was not a saint. <laughs> and that's the way it is. A lot of a lot of people, even Tom Landry, you'd think there wouldn't even be a story there because the guy was like a pristine example of a Christian. Christian male and football, you know, and a god in that sense. But he wasn't. He had flaws too. So that's. I think that's what a book should be. It shouldn't only be a collection of you know uh, of events. It should be why that event was needed and why this guy was able to provide you know the context for it. So that's what I try to do. Well, you know, I mean, my Tom Landry book is 672 pages, and to the credit of. of Norton, they let it run 672 pages. You know, even though you might say, "Are you insane to write to to publish a book about a football coach at 672 pages?" They did, and I, you know, I'm grateful. So you just you just tell the story in its entirety, you know, because it's been told before. So you might as well tell it right.
1: We've been talking with Mark Rabowski. You can find two books of his in stores right now, Dreams to Remember, and also Whiskey Bottles and Brand New Cars, and undoubtedly some of those uh, long Wikipedia entries of yours as well. Mark, thank you so much for joining us. Thank you. I'm Rose Fox.
0: And I'm Mark Rotella, and this is Publishers Weekly Radio.
1: Next up, PW Comics Reviews editor Heidi McDonald tells us what's on tap for San Diego Comic-Con. Stay tuned.
3: I'm Eric Burns, the author of 1920, The Year That Made the Decade Roar. And you're listening to Publishers Weekly Radio. I'm Mark
0: Rotella.
1: And I'm Rose Fox, and you're listening to Publishers Weekly Radio, direct from the PW offices in New York City.
0: Every week, we get insider info from Publisher's Weekly editors and contributors, and today, PW Comics Reviews editor Heidi McDonald is here to preview San Diego Comic-Con. Hello, Heidi. Hello,
2: Mark. Hello, Rose. Hi. It's so great to have you. It's been a while. It has. It really has.
1: So what's happening? What's coming up in San Diego?
2: Well... Comic-Con. Um, some, I think last year I came on after Comic-Con, so I had the dazed and confused uh, survivor mentality mm-hmm. this year. <laughs> right, I have the, right. the dazed and confused planning mentality since we're deep in the throes of you know planning to get there but uh yeah it starts um two weeks from today a mere two weeks from today so not enough time for me personally for calvin who of course also works on comics i think pretty much every minute between now and thursday is, is kind of accounted for it in a general way so you know mm-hmm. this is the day to do the laundry this is the day to send the <laughs> the issue so um yeah it's 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 exciting but, so
1: um, about how many people attend san diego every year
2: well uh, the the stated number is one hundred and thirty thousand wow. but but that word on the street is that on the street there 's actually a lot more people than that, and uh that 's really just the people who buy tickets and are staff the booths but it's pretty common knowledge now that more people now are just going to San Diego and kind of hanging out on the streets and experiencing kind of the you know miasma of the uh that's going on in the town so it's probably closer to 150,000 I would I would estimate so
1: and so that's just like 20,000 people 30,000 people who are just kind of showing up and and hanging out without uh, an admission ticket, without standing in the line. No,
2: there's a lot to do, even if you can't get into the exhibit hall. They have these carnival areas set up now um, that, you know, just to point out, don't have anything to do with comics. They're more about promoting television shows. But, like, I think this year there is a... Uh, You know, I forget the name of the show. I don't watch NBC, CBS, or ABC. It's one of those. (laughs) And it's going to have a drop ride set up right outside the convention center. There's also a Hello Kitty Pavilion. I know Adult Swim has a whole bunch of things. So even if you don't have a ticket, you go there. Oh, I know. Assassin's Creed has a parkour course that that you can run if you're so inclined. Um, There's a pirate ship that's docked. So there's actually a lot to see, even if you don't have a badge. I probably shouldn't say that, but people have definitely figured this out, um, that, you know, you could just walk around. I mean, you could hang out. They don't let you really hang out in the lobbies of the hotels now because there's so many celebrities there, and people have been hanging out getting autographs. But, you know, if that's your thing, this is the place to be, and the people who like doing that definitely know where to go to to do it. Um, And actually, if you like comics incredibly there's actually a comics themed event going on around comic-con oh shocking yeah and uh which is the art of comic-con which is a a display of artwork uh i guess it's like posters badge art and all sorts of other goodies that they've collected over the years and that will be at the library at the san diego public library and that is free and it runs throughout uh the month of july so if you are in san diego or the southland uh (laughs) go check it out yeah (laughs) So
1: um, speaking of libraries, you just did a piece on comics and graphic novels and libraries. Can you tell Mm -hmm. us a little
2: bit about them? Yes. Well, uh, you know, ALA is kicking off, as um, (laughs) I'm sure some of us are also aware. And uh, there was some talk that I would go to that this year. But I decided that doing ALA and San Diego back to back would just kill me. And so uh, San Diego is very early this year. Normally, it's the third week of July. This time, it's like right after Fourth of July. But uh, ALA is on, and they have a huge comics presence there this year. They have a whole lineup of graphic novels. They have a whole Artist Alley set up. It really has become its own mini comic con because, uh, as we've discovered, um, librarians kind of love comics. Uh, really? <laughs> well, well, some librarians do. <laughs> a lot of the younger librarians definitely love comics. Mm-hmm. So, uh, and I know Andrew Albanese is another editor here. He does covers the library market, and he's just every time he comes back from a library event, he's telling us about how how you know graphic novels are everywhere he goes. Um, Which is exciting. So, um, yeah, I wrote an article, and that was actually about the one area where little comics and graphic novels are lagging a little bit, which is among adult collections. Um, But kids' collections and teen collections, YA collections, uh, you know, graphic novels are very, very, very prominent in those right now. So um, there's a lot of very well-established collections. But among adult collections, I I think a lot of librarians don't quite know where graphic novels fit in there yet. Mm. So... Maybe a little bit more hesitant. So, yeah, I wrote a, a nice article that was about that. So
1: Interesting. Well, it's too bad you won't be able to go to ALA. Andrew did just give us a preview of it, and uh, it sounds like it'll be exciting. Yes. But that, that also is a lot of West Coast travel. It, it is.
2: It is. But, you know, I love hanging out with librarians. Um, in May, I went to TCAP, the Toronto Comic Arts Festival, and they have a one-day library festival, or library conference, excuse me, attached to that. Uh, it's an indie comics festival where they um smell smell they smell graphic novels too because when they come from the printer they smell so nice but uh as you can tell uh, i am totally brain dead right now <laughs> but anyway they sell graphic novels and they have this librarians conference uh that's one day and uh i i love it i mean <laughs> i cover it for pw i write articles but um I I only started to get into the whole library connection a few years ago, and I've made so many wonderful friends there. Librarians are so smart and fun and funny and love books. And, you know, they're such staunch defenders as well. I did not realize that, you know, when books are challenged, that librarians have this real, you know, protocol to go through that's that's really, you know, on the side of the book. hmm so, um, so I've really enjoyed uh, making those connections. So, um, yeah, it's it's all good.
0: So, and continuing on the theme of libraries, what is this? Uh, wh- where is the the, uh, the event for Comic Con San Diego? This this uh, retrospective or this uh, mm-hmm. art exhibit? It's going to be in which library?
1: Well, it's and- going to be at
2: the San Diego Public Library, which okay. is apparently a newish building that is up near. Uh, it's in downtown San Diego. It's right. very easily accessible from the convention center. Um, just a short walk, as is everything in downtown San Diego. Uh, but I haven't been inside, but it's a beautiful facility for the outside. And uh, they also have a whole day. They have two full days of programming there that is about graphic novels and libraries. Now, you must have a badge to get in. So for all you looky-loos who are just there to get, like, you know, Gwyneth Paltrow's autograph, you won't be able to get in uh, without a badge. So those popular badges. But, uh, yeah, you know, if you're into comics and graphic novels and libraries and uh, education and all these kind of um, forward-looking uses of comics, I guess I'd call them. Uh, there's going to be a lot of really excellent, excellent programming going on.
0: So you just mentioned Gwyneth Paltrow. <laughs> what, what is her uh, role?
2: I just guessed that. I I don't I even okay. know if she's going to be there, <laughs> yeah. you know. But they are having, uh, you know, I would say that Ben Affleck will be there. Uh, maybe Han Solo will be there. Uh, the two biggest panels at Comic-Con are the Star Wars panel and the... DC Comics movie panel. So they're going to have wow. four star, yeah, for Star Wars. I mean, who knows? I I'm, I'm guessing they're going to have the cast there and they might have the old cast, the new cast. That would be kind of exciting. So, I mean, I don't think Harrison Ford likes doing these kind of events at all. So, uh but Carrie Fisher loves doing them. So, yeah, you know, right. she might be there. That would be cool. And uh along with the new, the new cast. Uh but for DC, this is kind of a huge huge uh coming out party for them because they really been lagging with marvel in their movie department so they have a whole big slate of movies coming out they're gonna have batman versus superman with ben affleck and henry cavill and introduce wonder woman played by gal gadot so everybody's expecting her to be there and suicide squad with uh harley quinn and the joker and all these characters that most uh regular movie going people have never heard of but comic book fans really love
0: right
1: so there's still a lot out there for for the fans of the comics who are who are going to the movies hoping to see their old favorites and it's not just being marketed to people who didn't grow up on the comics and just want I, to see the big blockbuster.
2: Well, I I agree. I mean Suicide Squad is a little bit deep in the catalog, but Harley Quinn is a hugely popular character right now. Um she's uh, was developed on the cartoon actually back in the 90s but she's sort of like the Joker's sometime girlfriend she's kind of this trickster character who goes around and and you know, pulls. <laughs> she has a very lunatic, lunatic sense of humor, I guess you'd say. She's a little bit like Bugs Buddy, maybe. Mm-hmm. Um, as is Deadpool. That's Marvel's version of that character. He's sort of their own kind of goofy, breaking the fourth wall type character. Who's also getting his own movie. So my big wish is we see a Harley Quinn Deadpool cosplay crossover.
1: <laughs> <laughs> so uh, obviously, there's a lot of cosplay going on there. Is, is yeah. it to the part where, to the point where you really just can't move because everybody keeps being stopped to pose for photos are there designated photo taking areas how's that work
2: well um i think it did get to the the gridlock uh gridlocks portion a few years ago actually i mean there are people there i mean you've probably seen the photos they have incredibly elaborate costumes you know it'll be transformers who are nine feet tall and Mm -hmm. you know anime characters carrying giant crosses with wings and you know they, these costumes are, are uh, you know, as you might say, were we playing, uh, you know, Dungeons and Dragons. They're they're encumbered, you know, wow. extremely encumbered. <laughs> <Right>. and- <laughs> oh boy, that that joke is for all of us old school gamers. Yes, in exactly. The audience. I know. <laughs> thank, so that was, thank you. That, that was That was just for the, the yes for um, those who get it. <laughs> they're extremely encumbered. And um, Yeah, I don't know how these people do it. I don't know how they, you know, the time and dedication. I, I talked to, I was at a very much smaller show recently, and there was a, uh, I had some time to kill, so I was hanging out. And, you know, usually, you know, not to sound too snotty, but usually at a con, I just have a schedule that's pretty tight, so I don't have time to just hang out and talk to people at the show, mm. and uh, especially cosplayers. I mean, that's a little bit off my track, but uh, I was I was just waiting with this woman, and uh, who was African American and she was dressed as a Vulcan Star Trek member and she just had the green all over and it was just flawless. She just looked amazing. And I started talking to her about, you know, the time and she was just she was explaining to me like 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 it takes her literally, you know, almost two hours to put on this makeup and two hours to take off and just you know she was kind of dissing other cosplayers who don't take enough time she says then it gets all streaky but you have to blend 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 and i'm like you know these people are so dedicated and they're so creative and they look so amazing and you know i there is a little bit of kind of um you know snottiness about cosplayers just in terms of you know like you're kind of joking about blocking the aisle but you know taking up room and all that sort of stuff but i mean so many of these people are so dedicated and passionate about it and um, you know, the more I learn about it, the more impressed I am, to be honest. so.
0: And, and so what is their role there? Is it a, a fan's role, or is it
2: That's interesting. Cosplayers? I don't know. That's an interesting question. Because, you know, it's very hard to get into Comic-Con now. Like, literally to get a ticket is sort of a lottery. Like, you, the ticket sold out in an hour. The website uh, was flooded. Uh, you know, we're still talking probably about... Um, uh 40 to 50,000 tickets so or more. I mean that's a ballpark estimate. Nobody knows how many actual tickets there are, but uh you know, this is a, that's a lot of tickets to sell out so quickly. Right. Yeah. And so you have to be really dedicated to get in and lucky to get in. And you know, there's no saying that there isn't a great cosplayer who didn't get a badge to get in, but you know, maybe they have an in or something. I mean, if you really need to go, you find a way. I guess. Um, And to me, it's like once you get into the show floor, it is so crowded that you can't even see these things as well as you should. And, you know, if I were, I guess I kind of understand the psychology of wanting to, I mean, you do want to show it off. It's like Halloween.
1: Sure. And, And, you know, if you're that person who's spending two hours putting on your makeup, then you want people to see it. Yes, yes,
2: exactly. So I think it really is just a matter of dressing up and marching around, you know, I mean, it's just... It's just becoming part of this thing it is very participatory mm-hmm. um and i think we've talked about that i know i've been on here before and i've talked right. a little bit about that and uh i think it is kind of just this idea that um you know not everyone can play in the super bowl you know not everyone gets nominated for an oscar but you can go to comic-con and you can be part of this the show you can be part of this really huge event right and and I I think that's a little bit of of what it's become. I think it's become this kind of like you know I'm the king of the cosplay or the queen of the cosplay right. at this point. So and it just becomes its own thing. It's a lot of fun. I I remember one year I was hanging out with a friend and we went out back just to get some air. And as we went in, there was like Peter Mayhew who plays Chewbacca was walking by, and then somebody came by in a Chewbacca costume, and and you know it was just really funny. <laughs> <laughs>
1: yep. Well, it sounds like a great time. Do you have any tips for uh, first-time attendees? Because uh, it sounds like it must be so overwhelming the first uh,
2: time you go. Yeah, I think I guess. I mean, I think it might also just be kind of fun. I think there's a lot of YOLO and FOMO at uh, at Comic Con, you know. But I think especially FOMO because there's just so much stuff going on so that you're always like, oh no, I missed this, and you just can't do it all. So uh, I, I always say either. Well, there's three three different philosophies about the best way to do Comic-Con. The first one is to just make no plans at all. Just go with the flow and just, you know, let it happen. Um, And which is sort of (laughs) my druthers, but, you know, I don't get to do that. Uh, The second one is to plan every minute, you know, down to the second. Uh, Every activity, you know, make a brutal schedule. Uh, Which... I don't know. To me, also, I I think if you really are dedicated and, and, you know, people wait in line for overnight to get into these panels. I mean, it's hugely time consuming just to do one thing sometimes. So I guess the uh, the third option is to plan for one thing each day that you must do hmm. and kind of plan the day around that one thing. Right. And uh, I think the middle ground is probably the most sensible because, you know, people go into like this Star Wars panel. People are already talking about it online. Like, if you could line up now, uh, you people would be. It's in two weeks. Uh, two weeks from, uh, well, the, tomorrow, I guess, as we're recording this. And uh, I, I guarantee people would be camped out now if they could. And like uh, they, they're talking about it. And what they're probably going to do is camp out. Um, I think they don't allow people to camp out more than 24 hours in advance. So, But the people create lines to get in the line, I found out. So there was already this right, yeah. You're just you're just me, you know, shaking your head, and I am too. It, it's, it's but there's this entire culture that's set up of how to get in line, how to make a line, that's to get in line, and then there are lines <laughs> to get in the line to get in the line, and uh, and you know, and yeah, it is. And I, I I wrote this on my own site this morning, but um, like they give up wristbands, like you basically if you want to be there first thing in the morning in the hall to see these panels, you have to stay out overnight. That's that's fair. Um, but they give out wristbands at 1 in the morning, and then they start giving them out again at 5 in the morning. But like you, So you kind of have to be there now. It's not like you just, you know, send one person to camp out, and then everybody show up, and you get in. That's not going to work anymore. You all have to be there at either 1 a.m. or 5 a.m. to get your wristbands. Wow. But the people don't like this plan. They were saying, like, you know, there was this one person who commented who said, um, you know, this is terrible because – My wife couldn't even leave to get food for the children because she was afraid that they'd come around and give the wristbands. And, you know, I'm like, well, first off, you're sleeping out with your kids in this line to see some panel about some horrible movie. All right, so you know, why don't you get a grip right there? But second off, it's like you know, go to the supermarket. This is an adventure. I mean, what you you know, no food for the children. I mean, come on, Are you gotta go to Ralph's. Like plan, plan ahead, plan ahead, plan ahead, plan ahead. Right. Plan ahead. This is not a cakewalk. You gotta be in it for the long haul. So you know, <laughs> it's 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 really. I mean, I have very little. I have no. You know, I don't go to Hall H, so I avoid all this. And, you know, the first time I was like, oh, i got to stand in line for what? No way. Um,
1: <laughs> your your press pass doesn't get you. No, it doesn't. There fiction. was some
2: talk of, of changing that, but uh, they didn't. And I think it's just as well. So, I mean, if I really had to get in, I know I'd find a way. But right. I have one. Uh, and this is something I only talk about when I do podcasts. I don't talk, or radio, when I don't talk, write it. But I have one writer for, you know, as you know, I have another site that, that I run my own site. And I have one writer for that who is, uh, an expert at sneaking into places. Hmm. And he was just like telling us, like he makes color Xeroxes of things like, like, cause you get the wristband, like, right. like basically if you like the, the, the Holy grail of hall H is a bathroom pass. Cause if you have to go to the bathroom they give you a little chit to go out, and then come back in. But you can only use it, like, within a half hour. Whoa. You know, it's not like you can go off and do other things. You have to use it right then and there. So, but people plan ahead. They make color Xeroxes of every possible color. Um, wow. Yeah, yeah. It's wow. really, yeah. But there's also, like, you know, my this guy was telling me there used to be secret tunnels that he would use. And, <laughs> and you know, parking lots and you know, I mean, he's he's really organized. I mean, he gets in all the time. He he's pretty much one step ahead. You know, these guys who escaped from prison. I mean, they you know they they should consult with this guy because he's pretty much one step ahead of the authorities at all times. Wow. <laughs>
1: but again, the amount of time it's it's like the cosplay. Really, it's just a different way of of investing hours and hours of your time into this one event.
2: Yes, absolutely. Yes, you are correct.
1: <laughs> well, that's fascinating. Well, Heidi, thank you so much. I won't ask you to give away any more secrets. Yes, yes.
2: I've um, told too much. Next you'll be asking me for my favorite restaurant. I'm not going to tell you. <laughs> well, always great to have you on. And
1: thank you yes, for taking yes. some time out of your pre-Comic-Con oh, schedule. Abs- sounds like it's packed.
2: Absolutely. Always a pleasure. And, you know, look forward to coming back again.
1: Listeners, don't forget you can catch Heidi and friends on PW's Comics Podcast. More to come. You can find it on our website. And now for final word from our sponsors.
0: Hi, this is Michael J. Martinez, author of The Venusian Gambit. You're listening to Publishers Weekly Radio. And that's it for today's show. I'm Mark Rotella.
1: And I'm Rose Fox. And you've been listening to Publishers Weekly Radio.
0: Join us next week for another in-depth author interview. We'll also have lots more juicy insider info on best-selling books and the nuts and bolts of book publishing.
1: In the meantime, you can listen to this and every episode of Publishers Weekly Radio absolutely free at publishersweekly.com slash Radio. Subscribe to our podcasts on iHeartRadio and iTunes and hear every new episode streamed live on audiobookradio.net.